This episode of the Asians Represent podcast is brought to you by our amazing Patreon supporters and subscribers on Twitch. Uh, thanks to their support, we're able to take all of this extra audio from the past season of the Asians Represent podcasts, so that's episodes 35 to 45, and return them to our public podcast feed. Moving forward in 2022, thanks to their support, we'll be able to do monthly drops of Asians Represent episodes onto this feed. We're super excited. Now, if you are a patron of the podcast, don't worry. Our extended feed will continue, and our behind-the-scenes look at Dungeons & Asians, no dice, no problem, will still be a Patreon exclusive. That said, we are so excited for everyone to be able to access this episode in audio format. Uh, it's been quite a journey and quite a transformation of Asians Represent. We are constantly evolving, and we are so glad that our community is growing and here for this journey with us. That said, let's get to the episode. This episode's called Anything But Samurai, Crafting Japanese Fantasy Settings. And so for today, we're just going to hang out, talk a little bit about, you know, what you, the audience, can do if you're interested in including perhaps Japanese or signifiers of Japanese history or culture in your homebrew campaigns, in your home games, or even if you're a streamer or publisher. Um, and our guest for today is Dr. 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 Emma Yesui. Welcome <laughs> for, for the first time to the Asians Represent podcast proper. Um, oh, yeah. Super happy. Yeah, right? This is the first time you've been on the podcast. You've been on the show a lot. Yeah. But this is the first time you've been on the podcast. Um, Actually, we had the L5R retrospective. Oh. God, you're right. You're right. You're right. I got I got an um actually in. This is my first um actually actually. Um, on the actually. <laughs> um, actually. Hold up. Fine. Welcome for the second time. First time as a doctor. There you first go. time as a That's doctor. That's true. This is a recent occurrence. <laughs> and... These kinds of corrections would not be made possible without my amazing co-host Steve. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so you've <laughs> we're gonna we have to do a lot of this like sort of this preamble because some things are going to be different about Asians Represent. Uh, like Emma, you're still very much a part of Asians Represent. Also, mm -hmm. like if you're watching this on the Twitch chat, like can we just see some like love in the Twitch chat for for Emma and this achievement? Um, I did a thing. <laughs> you did a thing. You did a thing. Uh, you did a thing that many people cannot do. Um, so super proud of you, Emma. Thanks. Super proud. Um, so if you folks are wondering, uh, what happened is uh, the Asians Represent podcast is now merged with the wrap-up. So we decided that instead of dividing ourselves uh, between all of these different sort of media streams, we were like, let's just pick one. And so right now, the Asians Represent podcast is going to be on the first and third Friday of every month. Um, we're going to dive into like deeper topics like, you know, uh, multiculturalism and homogeneity or the myth of homogeneity in Japan as it relates to how you can craft fantasy settings inspired by, you know, that region of the world. Um, so there are, there are some changes and... Uh, I'm super happy, Emma, that you could be our first guest back <laughs> post-change. Yay! Uh, Same, old that said, <laughs> Same old guest. Same old guest. 
Um, but with the, you've got these two letters in front of your name and these three letters at the end, um, which are awesome. Uh, that said, I'm sure that there might be some new people watching or listening to the podcast. So Emma, do you want to do a bit of an introduction to who you are, what you studied, um, and what you're interested in? Sure. Uh, still study, hopefully. <laughs> still study. Um, so yeah, I, I'm an archaeologist, uh, which is how I met Daniel in the first place. And I work on essentially ancient food practices in northern Japan in what's known as the Jomon period. And I'm sure I'm going to talk about that a bunch. Uh, so I look at technology like grinding stones to look for evidence of plants to see not just what plants were on site, but what they were probably using to make food, medicines, and uh, craft materials. And I got into TTRPG stuff, uh, well, because of Daniel, <laughs> <laughs> asking if I wanted to read the core rulebook of L5R, which we did last summer for many, many hours. <laughs> And yeah, it's yeah, almost a year. That was my jumping board into doing sensitivity reading and cultural consultancy for TTRPGs. Uh, so yeah, if you have a Japanese setting or themes and aren't sure if you're making an oops or not, or just would like someone to look it over, I can do that as a Japanese diaspora as well as someone who has studied Japan archaeologically and historically for some time now a real a real doctor on this yeah oh and a i also on this. i'm a little obsessed with the intersections between japanese past and current pop culture and what that means for how we view the past so the whole use of things in ttrpgs is definitely up my alley yeah this this is you are, you are the in my mind you are the only person that could possibly do this episode with us right now. Um, given, you know, your experiences in the community, your work in TTRBGs, as well as your academic background. Um, I'm super hyped for this because you're, you're right. You know, I think the, the Jomon are super interesting and I'm sure there are many people. And Steve, you made that realization maybe an hour and a half ago. Yep. <laughs> maybe an hour and a half ago. Most of you in the audience have probably seen the Jomon in the media that you consume. Absolutely. Um, yep. 100%. And I, I think before we even dive into the Jomon and, and media, I think it might be worthwhile to talk about who the Jomon were. And perhaps after we talk about the Jomon, we'll dive into, you know, more contemporary groups and, you know, like contemporary Japanese society and how they view multiculturalism. Sure. Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah, the Jomon's a great place to start. Um, not just because they're kind of the earliest cultural period that we can recognize. So there is a Paleolithic in Japan, somewhere between 30,000 years ago to about 16,000 years ago, but we don't know that much about it. We primarily have stone tools, but for the Jomon period, it's like undeniable evidence from the very northern tip of Hokkaido all the way down into the Nansei, which are the southern islands of this cultural period that differs a lot between regions, but has enough in common that it appears to be 
pretty consistent and it lasts for over 10,000 years. And this is a great contrast to, <laughs> I did some quick spite math and it just probably not 100% right, but just an idea. All of the samurai periods put together or any of the periods associated with anything samurai related is around 4% of the total recorded history we have in Japan. That's not including the Paleolithic. So it's only around 4%. And if you take out the periods where samurai were like bushi, but not a social class, it's only about 2%. So we're basing our perception of Japan on 2 to 4% of the recorded past, either material or written that we have for, yeah, this wide set of islands. So, yeah. Jomon, great. Yeah, it, great devastation. Jomon, <laughs> great. Also, I, I, you know, with the, the Jomon, I think it's, um, it's a really interesting example of how, A, you can take a very, very um, interesting sort of material culture phenomenon, mm-hmm. particularly their pottery, and turn it into something fantastical. And, and I think, uh, you know, perhaps the, the best example of this is Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Um, I pointed this out to you, Steve, uh, in our chat. You were like... I lost it when Breath of the Wild came out. <laughs> yeah. Because I love Zelda games. And I've been studying the Jomon for quite some time. And so, yeah, for those who don't know, all of the, the Sheikah technology and aesthetic is all based around Jomon period pottery and mm-hmm. sort of uh, symbols and I don't know, the general aesthetic. I was trying not to say aesthetic twice, in episode, but I <laughs> failed. Anyways. Yeah. You, you, you take those, 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 those middle Jomon pots and you whoop, put them upside down. And those are the shrines. Uh, likewise, that same sort of like spirally aesthetic that they have on yeah. the pottery is seen on those, those guardians, the stalker guardians and everything. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it, it's a, it's an interesting way of basically bringing this part of Japan's like history and like prehistory, you could say, mm-hmm. you know, into the, the public eye. Yeah. Um, but it's also like a really interesting example of how the Jomo, who, and I guess we'll talk about the connection between the Jomo and contemporary Japanese people mm-hmm. or, or perceived connections or lack thereof, and how, you know, Japanese society and Japan as a country via, you know, the spread of technology and games media have basically almost like taken ownership of Jomon identity and Jomon traits. Uh, and I kind of want to leverage that or at least segue that into a discussion about like what it means to be Japanese. Yeah. And I think that's something that we have to talk about before we even dive into more of the like, oh, these are some cool things that you can use in your D&D game or other TTRPG. Yeah. Um, because like you said, that 2 to 4% of the past is basically held up as the sort of signifier of what it means to be Japan pre, you know, the modernization of that country. Yeah. Um, 1868. So, 
Yeah, with the like the 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 black sails and Matthew Perry and the Meiji Restoration. Yeah, uh, and then of course like post World War II Japan mm-hmm. uh, and Japanese nationalism. Um, but Emma, do you think that you could give like our audience sort of a, a an introduction to what we kind of mean by where we're talking about the the myth of homogeneity in Japan in contemporary sure. Japan? Well, like as I said for the Jomon period. This is a good way to segue in my own mind here. The Jomon period is the only cultural period for the entirety of Japan that we agree was across the entirety of what is now modern Japan. So it's the only culture period that applies to any site found within a certain amount of time across those islands. So that means everything that comes after and before modern times was only limited to certain sections of the island. So all of the samurai stuff only really in South Central Japan. And any other time periods we bring up are going to be kind of limited in time and space. Uh, But even for something like the Jomon that we consider to have taken up 10,000 years across all of the islands, there's still so much regional variation and diversity that it also seems foolish to say it's all the same because it's not just because we can say it's a similar culture period. doesn't mean everyone's the same and it's showing up in the exact same stamp every time. And so this idea of modern Japan or historic Japan being all the same makes no sense. (laughs) Yeah. And there are a bunch of reasons that kind of start with the Jomun period as to why this is absolute nonsense and where archaeology can actually help. Because archaeologically, we see so many cultures and societies across the islands. And the Jomun is kind of the base of that. So you said before that there's no real link between Jomon and ethnic Japanese people. It, there, There is, mm-hmm. but they're not the only ones with genetic or cultural claims to the Jomon period. Since in the north, the Jomon period was followed by several other cultural periods, ultimately culminating in what's known as the Ainu culture or medieval or historic Ainu. And the Ainu people very much still around. So they also have equal claim to Jomon stuff. And then in the South and the Nansei, what some people know as the Ryukyus or Okinawa, but these two terms don't capture the entirety of those islands. They're kind of political geographic regions that maybe we can talk about more. It's not my, it's not my expertise, but a more inclusive term is Nansei, which just means Southern islands. And that's everything from the south of Kyushu all the way to Taiwan. So that's like hundreds of islands that connect Japan to Taiwan. And I... uh, yeah, there's so many cultures within the Nansei alone that uh, we can't just refer to as like Ryukyu or Okinawa or Okinawa. So there's a lot going on, and they also have equal ties to the Jomon period. 
what makes them all different is the genetic and cultural influences over time that came from various parts of mainland Asia and Southeast Asia and Far East Russia. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, Steve yeah. you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I wanted to. I want to give Emma a break because you've been you've been saying so many things that are just blowing my mind. So I want to give you a break. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to first say that I definitely had in my bingo card if we were going to talk about the Ainu, and I'm so happy that we are, uh, because it's one of the my favorite episodes of Asian percent I think the information there, uh, even as someone who's uh, Asian as myself and lives in the West, I had never really heard of the Ainu before. Mm. And it feels really like shameful for me to say it. But to be honest, I don't think there's any shame in it because, you know, there's a reason why you haven't really heard of them if you're someone like me. Yeah. So talking about and making these connections, I think is actually really, really good. And Emma, to your points, kind of the idea of making those connections and better understanding the complexity of all of it all really helps, I think, to kind of bring to light uh, just the absolute beauty, and the, the nuances of all of this, and really helps to break down the walls that have been built up to display a culture where you're really only focusing on, like you said, 4%, 2% of their history, because yeah. that is just by all measures in my opinion a bad thing to do yeah if someone only knew two percent about you (laughs) and or like two percent of your life and based all of their judgments about you on that two percent yeah how are you gonna feel probably not great (laughs) now i think we should we should make uh, a clarification sure an important clarification that we should make is that if you're out there and you want to tell samurai stories Mm. there's nothing wrong with that sure there's nothing wrong with that but, you know, if you are world building and you are in the process of world building and your thought process is, if I want to communicate a Japanese setting, your default should not be feudal Japan and the samurai. Or it doesn't have to be because there is so much more out there. Now, Emma, you mentioned a term mm. um, that I... Um, that I think, Steve, you you had never heard of before, uh, just as we were getting ready, and that's Nihonjinron. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you, do you want to explain that? As best I can. <laughs> <laughs> so Nihon is Japan, and Ron is, I got to remember the character for this. Essentially, it's the study of what makes Japan what it is as a nation and a culture. And this it became really a study or a discussion about what makes Japan unique and this idea of Japanese essence, uh, which are all like terrifying terms for a lot of people. And you should be alarmed if someone's like essentializing someone like the essence of a whole group of people just like back away from that. But the Nihonjinron narrative and discussion comes from a particular time and place i believe mostly around world war ii and immediately after it has been carried on by a lot of the like ultra nationalists now like the people who want to uh, censor the textbooks essentially rewrite history or like they call it new history which also super alarming that idea that Japanese people and their culture are special, different, and that you can find these traits and attach them to every Japanese person. Some measure of Japanese-ness out there. Mm -hmm. And some of the 
Bushido samurai era, some of the philosophy coming out of like the Edo period, all really got wrapped up with that as well. Even though immediately after World War II, a lot of people really dropped anything and everything Bushido related because it had been so ingrained in the military system and in the emperor imperial system and that idea of the emperor's like divine rule, descent of the kami, all of that stuff. So yeah, a lot of history. Yeah. So it's, sometimes it's a deep topic. Yeah. And so sometimes when doing cultural consultancy, this is the kind of stuff that I know not a lot of people know, but some of your terms that you use, some of the ideas, all direct back to that narrative that is highly nationalistic, essentialist, and problematic in a lot of ways, and not widely believed by (laughs) people in Japan or Japanese diaspora. So it's stuff you have to be careful about. Yeah, with with that like with that nationalism and that like that premise of like uniqueness and homogeneity because if you're going to in this sort of Nihonjiron discourse basically talk about like well what makes Japan unique? Well, it's the people. Well, what are the people? It's these people. These people. And yeah. These people. And that's the really that's the that's the thing we need to discuss right now and it's when you say these people, you're already engaging in this sort of cultural erasure mm-hmm. that Japan's history has seen a lot of, particularly when it comes to like the Ainu and the um, the like the Nanse yeah, that you, the that Nansei you talked Islanders about. The Nanse and cultures, um, the Korean descent Japanese who have been there for millennia. Uh, a lot of mixed. There's a lot of mixed uh, Japanese and Taiwanese that have been back and forth. There's a lot of mixed Portuguese, Dutch, everything else since the 14 and 1500s, like millennia of stuff going on. Even what's considered ethnic Japanese or don't want to use the term, but like Wajin or, you Mm. know, who's being included in the Nihonjin Ron are widely archaeologically, genetically and everything else considered to be descendants of Korean uh, migrants. So Korean and Jomon in particular peoples with a mass movement of people from the Korean peninsula coming into Japan. That's when it's thought that for a long time, the Japanese people began. Are, are you talking about the, like the Yayoi? The Yayoi. The Kofun? Yeah. yeah okay. So the Yayoi was when that happened. And Kofun, it was more or less set up. They're like, hey, here yeah. we are. We're, we're a little kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Not across the entirety of Japan. Like I said, like both Yayoi and Kofun are limited in how much of Japan, modern Japan they took up. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned, um, I, I want to actually go back to the Ainu. I know Steve, you listened to that episode. That's actually episode 18 of the podcast. That feels like a long time ago. Different world. Yeah. Um, different world. Um, but you know, when, you know, we have this idea of like what makes Japan unique and what are, what are the quintessential features of Japan, its history, and what should be communicated to the world? You know, 
we could do a lot as you know TTRPG creators, as people who you know work in pop culture, to tell different stories, or at least share different stories, or have conversations about it. Um, Steve, you mentioned that you you didn't know about the INU or anything like that, or I've never seen the INU. Um, but there are two really popular uh, sources of INU visibility that that people. Uh, often encounter the first one is more recent and it's golden kamui um and it's you know from what i gathered you know reinvigorated a lot of interest in the ainu particularly in young people Mm -hmm. and in the west fans of the anime um and then another one more a more classic one which was how i learned about the ainu was shaman king um and one of the characters in shaman king uh, the snowboarder, <laughs> um, Horo Horo, has a lot of Ainu iconography, not only on his like modern contemporary clothing, but also the kind of traditional objects that he uses mm-hmm. um, in that series. And I think that's really interesting, uh, particularly with Shaman King, because you have uh, a show or, or like a manga series where the central character's companion is very much a samurai or coded as like a samurai. Um, and you have this one character who is, um, who is, I say different, but not an outsider. Um, different. He stands out. He is unique. Um, when we look at Breath of the Wild, um, we look at the, the ancient technology, the guardians, the, the, the slate, everything like that. It's different. It's mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you go and you look at something like Oriental Adventures or Karatur, and you're just like, Oh, great. Kozakura and wah, that's just Japan. Or like all of the warriors here, they are just samurai. Yeah. And it's yeah. A, you've <laughs> A, you've seen it. And B, they're basically taking these tropes and these, uh, you see, like almost like artificial symbols of a, of a history and multiple cultures. Because first of all, there are many cultures of Japan, like Emma said. And you're basically saying this is Japan. It blows my mind too that for a caricature, they're like, nah, we need two feudal Japans. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. just one. And they're like right we next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's two Chinas and there's two Japans in Caratour. Perfect. Yeah. We, we just haven't we haven't we just haven't gotten to the second China yet, Emma. Oh my we'll goodness. we'll get there in like ten years. Sweet. I wish I had never um, heard that expression in my life before. What the, <laughs> what the we haven't got to the second China yet. Like I don't need We to haven't got that. to the second China yet. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't got to that one yet, and we haven't got we we haven't even really got to Japan yet in Caratour. We just got to a part in one of the Chinas where <laughs> their city is literally we can see Japan. Yeah. <laughs> That's their identity. Um, it's wild, um, but like I think you know, talking about like the you know the the political and the the sort of educational movements to create this. Yeah sort of post-World War II, unique Japan, is, again, it's not something that's exclusive to Japan. China is also, um, you know, responsible for doing something like that as well, um, post-World War II. Um, And that affects their scholarship. And if it affects their scholarship, it affects, you know, how young people grow up and learn and what kind of things you see in media. Um, And I think the Ainu are, are one that I think is is particularly tragic, Mm. Uh, not only from, like, how they've been like fucked over in the past historically, but how they continue, you know, to experience an immense amount of like discrimination, mm-hmm. not only just in society, but in like 
legislation and politics. Yeah. Um, so it was only in the last five years or so that they were granted like official minority status. And it was, I think, or maybe I have this the other way around. I think recently they were given indigenous status. And in 1998, they were officially declared a, an ethnic minority, which all had like legal, legal ramifications. And uh, yeah, a lot of stuff related to that. But really, it's not surprising. Like, don't feel bad that you haven't heard about the Ainu in North America, because one, North America doesn't even cover its own indigenous issues, let alone international ones. So of course, we're not going to get taught about any of this. But if it helps put it into context, what happened to the Ainu peoples, especially starting with the Meiji Restoration in 1868, is actually directly modeled off of what happened to North American indigenous peoples. Because Japan brought in specialists from the American Midwest to help them quote unquote, eradicate their, their indigenous problem and to set up ranching and farming. So yeah, a whole lot of Americans and British dudes and American experts came in, not just to tell them how to like raise cattle in the North, but how to best get rid of, you know, a local population, which for them was making reserves telling them how to live their lives and killing their dogs because dogs were the symbol of Ainu independence and hunting practices. So yeah, they, yeah, (laughs) it's a super rough period of time. Yeah. And I think it's only alluded to in like, if you think about mainstream Western media, I think the only time I can recall that particular practice ever being alluded to is is in, is in the last samurai. Um, No. That Tom Cruise movie, because Tom Cruise's character in that movie is literally brought in from the West for that reason. Um, and then, of course, that movie has a whole slew of problems. Yeah. Um, but that 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 particular practice that you mentioned is is actually featured in the movie, um, which I just thought about right now. Um, the whole thing with the Ainu, I, I I often find is like really interesting because you know there's this idea of like what is modern, what is industrial, what is imperial, yeah. and what is savage. Yeah. And then there are, is of course a lot of discourse around the Jomo with regards to like hunting and gathering yeah. and agriculture. And you know, from from like if you're like just like te- you're just listening to this this podcast or watching it, you're probably thinking, well, okay you know, this um, entire like hunter-gatherer, agriculturist, both sound interesting. What's, you know, what's the difference, right? But then when you think about how, you know, agriculture is seen as modern, Western, European, Mm -hmm. right? Forward thinking. And then you think about hunting and gathering and how that is backwards and not modern and savage and primitive and romantic, right? Then you start to equate these like, prehistoric cultures or these contemporary cultures with their traditional practices and these views of how, you know, the world perceives of Japan. Uh, And also how Japan perceives itself a little. Yeah. In particular, like government and uh, there, there is still a national narrative because it's taught through elementary schools and it's shown in museums. Uh, 
I'd say the vast majority of the Japanese public is not well informed about the vast majority of history. (laughs) So (laughs) that's another thing, like not everyone in Japan even knows this stuff. But yeah, yeah, that idea of a romantic past and the turning point at which everyone becomes modern is really a bit of a fallacy. And archaeologists are very familiar with it, but I think it's still sold to wider public because it's easy. Instead of saying it's an extended process that never really ends and you don't just wake up one morning growing crops, like uh, (laughs) there's no clear division. But it's real nice, especially if you're going through something like an economic bust like they did in the 90s. And then everything industrial and modern becomes tiring or a source of anger and hurt. You're going to turn to parts of the past that things were that seemed easier or nicer. And you get the sort of obsession with time periods like the Jomon because they're idyllic in a lot of people's minds or samurai periods because there was a sense of order and structure that was lacking, especially in the post nineties economic bubble bursting. Like what do we need? Well, the past is often a band-aid for things going poorly in the present. We do it here. It happens everywhere. If the current times are crap, like, Oh, it was so much better then. (laughs) But of course you're going to gloss over all the complications. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's sad. It's complicated, and I and I think that's why you know conversations like this are really important because we can talk about how we can inspire others to look into these things. Um, that's why I think like you know Breath of the Wild is a really interesting example of how you know the world and and Japan are embracing symbols of the Jomo Mm -hmm. Um, in a way they like really hadn't before, not to this degree, not to this degree. I don't think, I don't think there's anything like it. And I think what's really interesting is that, you know, in, in breath of the wild, that ancient technology is seen and is portrayed as more advanced than the current technology. A sort of lost past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I found that super interesting because a lot of the times the past, especially that deep is shown as sort of, technologically behind they're more magical usually they're like mysterious and interesting and yeah it's uh i'd say common to do that and i understand why but rarely do you talk about a past group be having their shit figured out (laughs) yeah which for the the jomon we know they did because like you don't stick around for ten thousand years with very (laughs) minimal changes to your basic practices with without having something figured out yeah absolutely and i mean even even that i mean emma you know that i am still deeply obsessed with that middle jomon pottery yeah it's amazing um, it's beautiful <laughs> so like flame they're, style they're... pottery if anyone wants to search uh jomon j-o-m-o-n just search jomon pottery or that's you're gonna get that pottery <laughs> you're going to get flame style pottery and yeah. And I think the, oh, go ahead, Steve. 
I was going to comment on the Breath of the Wild piece. So, FYI, I, I only finished my first Divine Beast, so I'm not that far in the game. Oh, so uh, I won't ruin <laughs> Okay, so, no, so no, really spoilers. But what oh, I will say I is that so much. I had a when I first started playing all the Sheikah stuff, mm. I knew they were like channeling some kind of culture. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. My gut feel was like, oh, it's just some kind of like Orientalist mishmash, whatnot. So when you told me and gave me these links, I was ecstatic. I was like, yeah, tell me more about that. Uh, and what I really like about Breath of the Wild is that, like you said, this old power is like ancient and powerful and to be respected. And in most cases, in my playthrough, feared. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's coming for you. Yeah, it's coming for you. You, know, you see the, you see the, like the beam is like, yeah. and he's like, oh, I'm dead. Yeah, like I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Sorry, my horse that I have. Um, but I have assumed, based on how like I'm playing through the game, that the story is eventually going to be that the understanding of your past, based on other mechanics of the game, when you understand your past and you respect it and you engage with it, that is where your power comes from. And that's like a really powerful message. And I really hope that as I play through that that theme is reinforced and whatnot. Maybe it doesn't, and that's fine. But I still get to walk away with that feel that there was definitely that potential there to just talk about how the complexities, the nuances, all that stuff that make up who you are today, that is a source of power. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really interesting. And I really, really like that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely not going to spoil anything for you if you've yeah. only done one Divine Beast. There's only say, four of them. What? I but, there, but, there's, but there's so much to do in that game. I don't want to. Yeah. Okay, fair. it's an experience. I don't want to, you know, it ruin is. anything. I love it so much. Okay, and okay. I say that as an archaeologist who studies the Jomon, there wasn't anything within that game that I went, oh, about. <laughs> and yeah. largely it is because they are using the aesthetic but they did it in a way that was interesting. So it wasn't just slapped on. Like you said, Steve, it was this exploration of both personal past and deep past. And that, yeah, rings true for a lot of us. But the way that they did it with the Jomon period, I thought was really well done. It also started a burst of conversation in Japan about the Jomon period. So we do see some of what they call like tangential learning, where right. for people in Japan, at least, they'll be like, oh, I recognize that from like school or going to the museum one time or a lot of local communities have so many products and things. If there's like a popular Jomon or famous Jomon site or artifact from that town, it'll be everywhere. Well, like a good example, Sanamariyama yeah. is huge it's they massive. like stopped they stopped they were building a baseball stadium they were building a professional baseball this. stadiums and they found a jamon site that took up the entirety of their plan <laughs> no way i'll i'll um i'll share it in the uh it's cool uh, the name in the twitch chat so you folks can look it up um sanai mariyama uh, it is really cool um it's on my list of like things in japan that i want to see so they um, it's they, bad like so, i'll take you so they so they were building a baseball stadium right and in digging up the foundation and building it they found an archaeological site and they were like stop okay yeah. so they did stop oh yeah. in japan okay. you stop you it's okay. yeah, yeah you stop japan protects its what they call buried cultural properties very very tightly so yeah it so took a some rallying to make it into a permanent park but excavating and preserving was never a question gotcha 
Yeah. And yeah. the reason yeah. I want to ask that is because with the idea of like, you know, reconnecting with your past in what I would call constructive and positive way in Western media and a lot of the tabletop RPGs that I play, when it comes to kind of the indigenous people, the people that mm. were there first, their power, their history and stuff is usually not seen exactly. as a source of power. Uh, hey, St- hey, St- hey, Steve. You know, in the latest Dungeons and Asians episode that isn't out yet. Yeah. Did you notice it? You notice a theme there? I absolutely did. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was I, in in that particular episode. I was definitely throwing you a little bit of kind of how modern education and mm. uh, mm-hmm. you know people in power how they will change that narrative in ways that yeah. are still baseline. So we just do a little bit of research. It seems like up to snuff, but uh, if you do any other digging, you realize it's all lies. All yeah. lies to you. Mm-hmm. That said, yeah, I wanted to give an example of Shadowrun, which really leans into the the old old powers and power structures of Native Americans, Indigenous folk, and how in Shadowrun it's completely played out off as a thing to fear, mm-hmm. as something uncontrollable, wild, and something to be contained. Yeah, and yep. that is a very specific choice you make in in designing a game. And in recent iterations, I will say they've tried better. They've tried to move away from it. But the fact of the matter is, it started at point A. And regardless of where point B is, there's always that line to it. So in my opinion, Shadowrun has handled that quite disgustingly. Yeah. But when I, I, I see media like Breath of the Wild, I feel like good about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's, well, there's also something... There's also something to be said about about like the the choice of using the Jomo. And when a lot of people are working on a TTRPG and they're like, well, I want to do Japan. And then you go and then you basically search Japanese history and you, you will invariably find like the Edo, right? And you're, you're going to find samurai. You're going to see things about Bushido. You, if you dig deep enough, you might be like, oh, I'll go to the library and read the Chrysanthemum and the Sword. Um, Please don't. Please don't. Um, that's just very dated, uh, which we will talk about on another episode. Look up about Ruth Benedict, though. She was a baller. Yeah. But, like, um, don't read that book. <laughs> don't read that book. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of information out there. And a lot of people lean into that information without an understanding of its context, i.e. Ruth Benedict and Chrysanthemum and the Sword. Um, the cool thing about the Jomon, and this is exactly what Nintendo did with Breath of the Wild, is that a lot is unknown about the Jomon because of how old it is. They, they well, not anymore because China's kind of got it now. But they have, at one point, they were like, we have the oldest pottery in the world. Yeah. Um, not anymore. 16,500 um, years old. Yeah. And then they found there's there's a Xianran Dong in, in China. It's like 20K. Something inter- wild, yeah. Something wild. 20,000 years old. And like the stuff that I was working on for when I was doing, like my doctorate was like, only 12,000 years old. And then the Jomon stuff that I did on my master's was was like early Jomon. So it's only 8,000. 8,000, yeah. Yeah. No, only like, 8,000 years only old. Only 8,000, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's, a very arche- that's like a very archaeology yeah. thing to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I have to catch myself when it's just like, oh, that was only like 500 years ago. I'm like, oh, that's, that's a lot to people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but like the thing is like, there's not a lot of context as to like, the maybe the language they spoke, the oh, writing. No, no, no. We have all we have is this material culture, stone tools. We have a lot of if it. they, or if they if they have a subscription to some sort of academic journal, learn about starch from Dr. Emma Yasui. Um, <laughs> but really, like you if you're in the server. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, like, the yeah, I feel it so much. 
Like, this is so have much. a lot of it. But, like, it's like having a puzzle where all the, the picture parts have been pulled off and you're just like, uh, <laughs> I don't mm, yeah. know. <laughs> but but there's a freedom in that. And there's a freedom in that. And that's what Nintendo did. They're like, they have this beautiful, iconic material culture. And we are going to draw inspiration from it. Like, it, there are like two things in Breath of the Wild. It's like the middle Jomon flame pottery. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Jomon Dogu. Yeah. And the, the figurines yeah. um, that they have. And they were able to basically take the sort of um, the visual language mm-hmm. of the Jomon and incorporate that into their game world in a way that was unproblematic. Um, for, yeah. They didn't really which make unproblem- any claims with it. Yeah. And that's nice to see as an archaeologist. There wasn't any like nationalist rhetoric or anything. Well, that also is partly because it's a fantasy world and Zelda is removed from Japanese history and mm-hmm. all of that. But it is worth noting that it was well done partly because the Jomon is so open, but also it was done by a team of Japanese people <laughs> for a Japanese audience, even though I'm sure Nintendo fully intended to send it elsewhere. That nod to Japanese prehistory was not for an international audience. They're like, look how cool this looks. Not like, recognize the Jomon? Yeah, that's for you. <laughs> yeah, like literally when, when I was playing it, I st- when I... the the first sign of anything Jomon, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Hold up. It's undeniable. <laughs> and like, I have very fond memories of middle Jomon pottery because I tried to make one myself. How'd it go, Daniel? <laughs> yeah, you, should, yeah you, you know what? You know what? <laughs> so um, I have a book here, the pottery that we're talking about. So this is, this is like a very accessible introduction that... There, you could certainly, and scholars will disagree with some things in this book, but like, I mean, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So like, so there, this is the the ancient Jomon of Japan by Junko Habu. I really like Junko, like, but I got beef with some of her yeah. stuff. <laughs> I, no, I, I do too. I do, I do too with this book. But for the time being, this is a very inexpensive and accessible mm-hmm. introduction to the Jomon. Um, but uh, that's the kind of pottery that we're talking about. Yeah. You go like this. And you put the ground here, and it's Breath of the Wild. You got yourself a shrine or a guardian, you know? I tried to make one of these. (laughs) You (laughs) fool. Yeah. It's all coil pottery with applique. So (laughs) I tried to to make one, but I was like, I got cocky. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to quarry the clay myself. I'm going to process the clay <laughs> and much. I'm going to make the clay workable and then I'm going to build it. It took me a month to make something like, like this big. Yeah. And then it sat on my desk here and I had dice in it for a long time. Um, but the process of making it, you know, gave me a very deep appreciation for, for that material culture. And I think it's really cool. Um, and it was really awesome to see it in Breath of the Wild. So when we go into our tabletop RPGs, because I think we should try to talk about other things too, mm. I think there is a lot of inspiration to be drawn from yeah. in periods of Japan's very vast culture history yeah. uh, that you don't see. And so if you're out there and you're working on you know, a setting and you know for your home game 
uh, like you have a rabbit folk character named Hibiki in your game and you need to like <laughs> do some stuff, give them a backstory <laughs> like Emma did, like pay attention. Um, <laughs> so like we've talked at length about the Jomon because they're like a really good example of how, you know, people can incorporate mm -hmm. iconic and very mysterious looking imagery into their games. Yeah. And I don't know if discourse about this has changed, Emma, but like last time you and I talked about Jomon Dogu, those ceramic figurines, because I know you have got that little like necklace. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the Jomon Dogu have these patterns all over them mm -hmm. that might be related to ancient tattooing practices. They, Is that still like in the discourse? They think they were tattooed. Uh, we know they had stretched ear piercings because we find a lot of the ceramic... Uh, earrings their spacers with intricate designs on them so they were stretching their ears there were some regions where they were even modifying their teeth so they would knock some out in patterns or file them into shapes so these were some rad looking people and <laughs> definitely <laughs> think they were covered in tattoos or tattooing was a thing or acceptable and that's pretty and, much and, true of most of Japanese history up until some of the feudal times. Like, Yeah, the tattoo was kind of something that I kind of wanted us to lean into because, you know, when a lot of people think of like, oh, tattoos, Yakuza. Japan, Yakuza, a forbidden practice and you can't show these things in public. They won't let you into a bathhouse. Um, but in other parts of Japan, uh, unfortunately, this practice has experienced a lot of erasure. Mm -hmm. But tattoos are are symbols yeah um particularly with like contemporary groups like the ainu uh ainu women have those lip tattoos and those really intricate armbands yeah. um and so when you're thinking about your fantasy settings and you're thinking about like oh you know what are ways in which my the fantasy cultures i'm making what are ways in which they can stand out um what are ways in which i can make them feel unique but not exotic to my world how do i make my world feel different how do i make my world feel unique because even from a business perspective there are so many samurai games out there how do you stand out how do you have yeah. your product stand out how do you have your world feel interesting and i think the the jomo with not only with their ceramics but with the dogu and then potential tattooing i think is a really interesting and like teeth and earrings yeah it's 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 awesome yeah. But even at a grander scale, because I know that the Kofun is another really cool one because not only is how their you know society is structured very different from the Jomo, but so are their monuments. Yeah. So <laughs> for a bit of context, so the Jomo period, after that, we have the Yayoi, which we talked about earlier where we have that big influx of population from the Korean peninsula in the sort of south central area of Japan. Uh, they bring with them metallurgy. So we get bronze and Those... iron around the same time in Japan. And they bring rice agriculture. So the wet paddy rice. And things start to change quite a bit near the end where we start to see our first uh, sort of what we call polities or what someone might have called a chiefdom back in the day, but archaeologists don't really use the term anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so they're little 
independent political units that have a little more power than just a village, but they're not yet a state-level society. That happens more within the Kofun period, which comes next. And so what people might know of from the Yayoi period leading into the Kofun is a person named Himiko. If anyone's heard of uh, Queen Himiko, uh, she shows up in a lot of video games and things. She also gets conflated with Amaterasu a lot. So some of the imagery that we see with Amaterasu is also on Queen Himiko, who is the first recorded ruler of Japan, quote unquote Japan. Uh, and it's some of the first record of anything happening in Japan, and it's coming from the Book of Song. So most of what we know about early Japanese history is being recorded by Chinese uh, empires and travelers. I feel and, like you're about to drop on me that the Lara Croft video game and movie, the new ones, actually don't do Himiko, uh, Queen Himiko, much justice. Oh, yeah, that's right. They have, <laughs> I have, no. I have like, that's, that's, right, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> you so, forgot? Well, I'm here to remind you. That. Yeah. I forgot about that. I yeah. actually had a student write about the representations of Himiko in <laughs> video games. But yeah, so Himiko and the Lost kingdom or whatever i haven't actually watched it because i don't think my rage meter can handle it um himiko is interesting because she gets used in so many ways in popular media she's either like that benevolent leader sometimes she's a crazy witch other times she's this like like seductress who's just out to ruin everyone uh she's often depicted as mentally unwell not entirely sure why, because all we know of her is what's written in like half a page where it says, here's this woman. We're going to call the place she rules Wa. Uh, she rules alongside her brother. She's a shamaness. And I think that's about all we have for her. <laughs> She's a bit <laughs> also, of a Wa. King Arthur uh, character. Gotcha. So nothing, as far as the books say, about, you know, having a mystical plague within her body. Yeah, or like that, oh. what's the, 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 the Tomb Raider game, the, the reboot game, where it's just like sun powers and all that? So I, I didn't really like the first game. I don't know, like the whole plague thing and that idea of Himiko trying to find a way to cure herself. I don't know where that came from, but it shows up in Osama Tezuka's comics of phoenix uh the phoenix series and i'm wondering if tezuka started that or if there's something i'm missing because i haven't actually sat down and been like tell me everything there is to know about himiko like do we have evidence like first of all i don't think we've ever found her remains so we can't evaluate if she was ill it's not written in the records we do know she passed away because everyone does, but like, we don't know why. <laughs> I think there's just a note that her niece takes over after her. So it's a series of female rulers in Japan in the earliest records. Um, yeah. And like, that's it. I don't know about this. She's crazy and diseased. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and, and, and possibly more importantly, because it is fine to have, obviously, like historical figures that you don't know much about because that's history and that's like we try our best yeah. but in the tomb raider series um both the video game and the movie the story centers around white voices 
going to this island to raid a tomb, uh, very clearly a place of resting and respect to yeah. take a- yeah. to take away their treasures or to stop someone else from taking away yeah. their treasures. And at the end of it, the result is the tomb lies in obscurity because it's too dangerous to give it back to the people who might actually take value from it. So that is obviously that is the main tension about it. Not necessarily yeah. the fact that we don't know who Himiko is, because yeah. that is obviously a work in progress. That's that's a lot. So, I actually, there's an interesting paper about the various representations of Himiko and how she's been used for like social and political means. But like my question is, what did her tomb look like? <laughs> yeah, right. But this 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 kind of mystery, right? Uh, I mean, because you with the yayoi, because we're I think there are two important things that kind of stand out in our conversations uh, about the yayoi. Um, I think the first one is obviously like metallurgy, right? Those yeah. dotaku bells are like beautiful, yeah. very intricate, right? And the introduction of like bronze and iron oh, working yeah. so, like, is um, really cool. What are they called? If anyone's played Pokemon, you've seen both Doku, the bells, and the mirrors. Bronze ore is a this, yayoi This is why we got you, Steve. This is why we got you. <laughs> Claydol. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I, got, I, I think look the bell's up. just called Dotaku. I might be wrong, or it's Do something. Oh, Claydol is just a Dogu. Yeah, it's a Dogu. It's literally just a Dogu, yeah. Yeah. And then Bronze Ore, I remember that one because it's a bronze mirror. That's easy enough. Oh, yeah, a Bronzong. Bronzong. Well, I that's was wrong, the, that's but, a, you know. That's a Dotaku, for sure. Um, but yeah, oh, so- damn, that's cool. What were we even talking about? Like, oh yeah, so so I was saying for the yeah, so I, I got distracted by Pokemon because I I don't have a lot of Pokemon knowledge past basically gold silver. Anyways, um, we're talking about the Yayoi. Basically, the jump. I want to summarize things. I want to kind of rein things in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For the Jomon, we kind of talked about really like really interesting um, material culture that can be used. Or, or potential practices that can be used to inspire your TTRPG settings or your stories. In the Jomon, we talked about their very, very unique pottery. We talked about the Dogu, mm-hmm. those figurines. We talked about like ear spacers, teeth modifications, as well as potential tattooing. They were doing just um, about everything. Yeah, as <laughs> as you know, and they of course have these like very, very beautiful settlements. Mm-hmm. Sanaimariyama, gorgeous. It's a park you can go visit. Yeah. Um, and you could see everything on it. It's really neat. Um, then, of course, when we're talking about the Yayoi, we're talking about, you know, metallurgy. We're talking about a period in time where people were coming from the Korean Peninsula over into Japan mm-hmm. and bringing in new technologies, new ideas, right? And this sort of cultural exchange yeah. in and of itself is a really cool thing to have in your story yeah. where you have, you know, these Jomon people or these people inspired by the Jomon who have this very, very intricate technology and how they maybe change, adapt, engage in conflict or you know coexist with these foreigners coming into their land um who bring metallurgy and have this mysterious queen right these are all things you a good little lesson from the yayoi period as well is even though what's become like the core of japan that's so central area even though things were changing quite rapidly during the yayoi period there that doesn't mean elsewhere in the islands that things were stagnating they were changing as well. They just weren't doing the same thing. And this is, I think, once we get into the Kofun period, where we can talk about the Emishi. 
But first, like, I asked about Himiko's tomb and the Tomb Raider. Right, right. Because there are some guesses as to Himiko's tomb. Because around the end of the Aoi, they started making these massive earthen mounds that were in the shape of a keyhole. So, like, bloop on top and then a bit of a triangle at the bottom. And those become really common during the Kofun period. So Kofun itself means like ancient tomb. Although if you put it through like Google Translate, I think for a long time it was coming out as like Dirt Castle. I was like, oh. Dirt Castle. (laughs) (laughs) They're like ancient Dirt Castle. I'm like, "Mm, thanks for that. But (laughs) not quite. Like an earth, rammed earth. (laughs) Yeah. So lots of earth, moats. They, there's this wide interpretation that they were trying to simulate a mountain because the tops of the mountains and the interiors are where the other world exists and how you get to things like Kami and the spirits and the powers of the earth that aren't human. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that you are returning leaders into the mountains, into essentially like the womb of the earth. And there's a whole lot going on there. Can we ever prove that? Absolutely not. <laughs> but that's great storytelling. It's great for, for stories. Your world. But um, yeah, like uh, I've been working on a bit of a a source guide for TTRPGs for the Kofun period. And I kind of would like to make one for some of the other archaeological periods where I, as an archaeologist, summarize what is known and then give you some things that you can work with But I also want to include a section for each one about the history of how the period has been studied and talked about and where you might run into issues of sensitivity and uh, like discourses you're not familiar with. So the Kofun period, it's big, like uncomfortable zone is that it is widely considered the period where the beginning of the imperial line resides so the first emperors the first sons of the sun goddess that go unbroken until like world war ii and even now so technically the emperor of japan is a descendant of the sun goddess amaterasu technically i don't know if they're they go around saying that anymore (laughs) it's like look at me (laughs) uh, i'm i'm the child of the sun like they don't really do that anymore But there was a lot of rhetoric and narrative around the Kofun period in particular. And you have to be careful if you're going to draw from time periods like this and what resources you're using. And so I just kind of wanted to, with the the privilege I have of being not just archaeologically trained, but also Japanese descent diaspora, like to evaluate some of this and as someone who goes in and out of Japan and sees how it's done there. But yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, so it might take a while, fam, but I'm working on it. <laughs> and, and then there are people who are going to be like, just take my money. <laughs> I think it's, you know, I think it's really important for, you know, people like you, Emma, to, to be in this space, not like Asians represent in particular, but like in the TTRPG space, mm. um, because it's, you know, viewpoints like yours and expertise like yours that the industry needs to move forward right Um, a lot of people don't understand or 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 perhaps just don't think about how 
the context in which history is being written and how that affects what is passed down and then how that affects what kind of knowledge is being produced. Yeah. Um, and that in and of itself is a really important conversation um, to have. Um, so, yeah, I, I think like the Kofun is one that I was like, you know, of the, so we basically wrote down Jomo, Yayoi, Kofun slash Inishi. Yeah. And of the three, like the Jomon and the Yayoi are the ones that I personally would lean into if I were creating something because of the, the complexities of the Kofun. Yeah. Right. And the, the, the sort of the, the political ramifications of a fiction you might write from a very, very culturally important time period. Yeah. While like the, the, the Kofun themselves, like the, the tombs are really really cool like that um that uh i was looking up before the daisen kofun the huge one it's massive from the sky you can actually it's massive and it looks like a keyhole it does literal keyhole it has like a big shape around it then a keyhole in the center and a moat filling the rest of it and what's interesting is you can't see them from the ground they just look like mountains they're covered in woods and there's like lakes around them they're huge um it's it's in the you um, can find... i think it's you can find oh, them on ahead, Google Earth. You can see them from the satellites. And once you find one, you'll see all of the others around it because they always come in clusters. So there's hundreds of them. And you can see all of them from Google Earth. Yeah, from the satellites. Yeah. Steve, I just I just sent you a picture of, of that particular one. They're cool. One Heck yeah. And we don't really know uh, what's in them. It's in our, it's our chat. <laughs> this comes back to the politics. We don't really know what's in them because they are potentially the tombs of emperors the imperial house agency doesn't allow people to excavate and so there have been some like ground penetrating radar attempts at you know getting an idea of what's in there but for the most part like it's rare to excavate one it really has to be crossed off the list as probably not an emperor or imperial line before you can get in there and so there's a lot of like speculation as to who's in there and why it's significant because something that big is probably for someone really important. But like who? A key, but a, a key keyhole shaped tomb is a very, you know, narratively interesting thing mm. to include in your world. Now, if like I think Emma correct me if I'm wrong, you might be saying, "Hey, maybe avoid calling it like, hey, this is a Kofun yeah. thing because of the thing there, but a a keyhole shaped tomb that you can only see from the sky." is really neat because you could you could you could craft an entire fiction around it where like the gods have the keys into the earth and there are all of these keyhole shaped tombs all over the place yeah. and one day the gods reach down from the sky and unlock the earth and there's there a, you go there's your, a lot you can there's your campaign <laughs> but yeah that's the thing with the narrative there are just certain things you should avoid like you know Imperial lines, perhaps, or <laughs> mm -hmm. some of that uh, divine rule, like maybe just don't don't fuss with it if you don't want to dig into everything and the history surrounding those ideas. And I've said this before, like when using the past in any way, there are some things to keep in mind. Like one, talk about past cultures like you would living ones especially if there are descendants, like living extant descendants. But even not like the Jomon period, just talk about them like they're people. If you wouldn't say it about 
someone's culture who's standing right in front of you, don't say it about peoples that have been, even if they've been dead for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then two, like, I'm afraid there's just a lot of research you gotta do, not just into the details of the time period, but into the how it's been talked about, how it's been studied, how it's been used, or what we call like the historiography of it. And yeah, it's just part of it. And like, I would yeah. like to make that a little easier for some of these things, <laughs> but I'm just one yeah. person. So yeah. You're just one person, but one person's got to start. You, you, you got to be the one to do it. And I, and you know what? I think, I really think that, you know, I mean, first of all, people hire Emma <laughs> if you got the bandwidth, Emma. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, there's so many projects. Like, I mean, you and I worked on one together, and that was really cool. That was great. Because it was like, we've worked on academic stuff together. Yeah. <laughs> that Because you looked at starch that I had on my stuff. It's true, I did. And, <laughs> I looked at some of yeah, your pottery. <laughs> you looked at some of my pottery. Yeah. And then the one that's not as old as the some of the Jomo stuff. But, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, we worked on a TTRPG thing together yeah and that's a really cool thing because it's like i i I mean selfishly it's like oh my world's colliding Mm. um but also it's like scholarship and how scholarship can really impact things that like games Mm -hmm. things that you might think are inconsequential um something else that's really cool about the kofun period related to another project i said i would do that i've only part done is uh (laughs) The Kofun period is when horses arrive in Japan. So, oh yeah. Oh, oh I re- you mentioned this before. And I, uh, I really want to so do a guide, like a guide for people who work in like fantasy settings. Like, what is a horse? How does it go together? As well as like a sort of a rundown of like horse breeds in Asia, as well as the tack and things that people use with them. Yeah, but like that's I, that's a big one. But the Kofun period is cool because that's when we get our first horses in Japan. And guess what? They're small. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing. So if you're like doing a Jomon inspired thing, you'd be like, "Don't do horses. No horses. They have dogs. Or, or maybe they maybe they have dogs. Maybe they're all like dire wolves or dire dogs. And they some cool things like that, right? Yeah. See this. Um, I I had this video idea. Um, because of like, you know, Steve, you, you, you know, her as well, Tracy from the broadswords, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, Tracy rides horses mm. and, and I was like, you know what we should do? We should go ride horses with Tracy and do like a whole Asians represent video thing. I was going to talk to you about this too, Emma, <laughs> and we could do a whole video and ride horses. Yeah. I grew up How with fun horses. Would that be? That'd be so fun. That'd be interesting. Cause horses scare the shit out of me. They, cool. are, Emma, they are Emma. terrifying. Yo, Emma, t- tell the tell the audience the story. But when you got kicked in the face, that's the story. I got kicked in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I Actually, think I told this on L five R stream. I was yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got kicked in the face by a horse. I was three, and yeah, I got kicked in the face right around here. Uh, I flew back and hit my head off of a pole, which apparently saved my brain because my skull fractured in two directions instead of just one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that happens. Here I am. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, children can bounce back. It's fine. Three years old. Yeah, it basically invincible. I didn't even uh, have a basically. Uh, what I was going to mention here was that, Daniel, I don't know if you remember back in the Oriental Adventures live read that we did. Um, we actually dissected a little bit about the horses and whatnot and how the authors, all of them, really much wanted to point <laughs> that the 
uh, Asian people. I almost said the Oriental people. Oh, the no, Asian. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 heard it, audience. Steve from Asians represent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put a stamp on that. Steve said it's okay. Um, oh, no. But we we actually dissected that as kind of like a emasculation of Asian people, where the samurai, the knights of this area, would ride ponies, and then yeah. the big knights, the big boy knights of the Western culture, would wear ride horses. But Emma, your context of actually, <laughs> they showed up very late. And now they have like these smaller horses, blah, blah, blah. It has a historical context that completely changes the reading there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just another example, even the short time period that we've had of just kind of this extra context here has lent itself to helping us move through and understand better deconstruct even our own ways of deconstructing yeah. like Orientalist views of, of media. Yeah. So, See, but yeah. you, you're, you're, are you referring to the, the, the section of the book when they're describing the knight? And then there's like, oh, yes, then there's the Oriental, the samurai. And he's got like eight arms, like one for the bow, one for the spear, one for the sword. Is, is it that? That's exactly what you're that. talking about? So okay. the, knight, the knight gets like four paragraphs describing how cool they are. And the Japanese samurai gets one paragraph talking about how they sit with a whole bunch of colorful silk on a stool with their pony. And it's like, with well, tons of weapons. <laughs> cool. Oh like, <laughs> All right. cool. So, like, yeah, fair. Like, European, like, they were called destroyers. Like, they were large horses. Yeah. But, like, most of the Asian ones were what we would classify as ponies. So, under 14.3, hands high. So, they were... They're... I like how you said that, like, I would know the difference. Like, if you, no, said, like, if you said 15 hands, I'd be like, cool. Yeah, so... A lot of the Japanese breeds and a lot of the like Eurasian step ones are probably maxing out at about 12, 13 hands high. And the smallest ones are around 10. So even if you don't know what that means, at least you have a relative idea. Right. Compared to uh, a medieval destroyer, which might be like 16 hands high. So like 10 versus 16. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of yeah, I... the breeds are quite small, but that doesn't make them ineffective. They still had a huge impact and uh, Japanese horses came in around four to 500 AD or common era CE and didn't change until I think closer to World War One and two when they actually saw European horses and went, oh, so small, <laughs> we should be better. <laughs> so small. <laughs> so small. <laughs> And started crossbreeding Japanese horses with European ones. And so there's actually a protection movement for like keeping some of the Japanese breeds going. Because, yeah, they're cute. Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to talk about, and particularly as it like relates to your research, Emma, sure. is also, also food. Food is a big one, yeah. Food is a huge one, uh, especially when we're talking about like research that's been done on the Jomal, the Yayoi, the Kofun. Yeah. Whatever you see TTRPGs that are talking about like Asia, they're always like raw fish, sushi, rice. Yeah. And when you're looking into, you know, a lot like particularly the research around the Jomon and early agriculture and the Yayoi and the introduction of r- rice, like you said. Yeah. It's like th- these are things that should be included in your game because like we talked about on the wrap-up like food can go a really long way in making your fantasy cultures yeah. feel unique 
And that's something you brought up, uh, Golden Kamoy, earlier for talking about the Ainu. And like, should be noted, that's it's not made by an Ainu person. Mm-hmm. So you still need to be careful with that. But one of the big things they do to talk about the differences and similarities between the main characters, the Japanese guy and the Ainu girl, is they eat a lot together. They show a lot of the food in high detail. They even go through the process of making some of the meals. And and it's all regionally correct because the guy might not be Ainu, but he did grow up in Hokkaido. And so it's all regional specific foods. But like, yeah, food is a great way to do it. It doesn't have to be rice. And if you're going back into the past, like quite a ways back, rice has only been in Japan for about 2,500 years. And I know like archaeologists say only about. Only. But keep in mind that the record we have for the Jomon goes back to over 16,000 years. So yeah, relatively it's important, but it isn't the base of all of Japanese cuisine and it's also not the base of cuisine for a massive time period within Japan and yeah not the only thing they're eating (laughs) think about like acorns and stuff like that yeah well well yeah that's a whole different thing (laughs) we could do a whole episode just on just on food maybe we should yeah maybe we should regional foods across and that is a great thing too if you want to incorporate specific elements of Japan, you can look into regional cuisines and the history of it, because it's a fun way to learn some history about different places. And it's not all just, you know, samurai. <laughs> I, honestly, I think one of the most, a uh, young me, one of the most interesting examples of how I learned something that blew my mind from food was, you know, when I was very young, I was like, you know, why are, why are these bun me? Why do they use baguettes? <gasps> And, you know, very young Daniel's like, I got to go find out. (laughs) And then you learn about like colonialism in Vietnam and how that affected their iconic cuisine. And that's a perfect example of of how you can use food uh, as a vector for learning about history and culture. It goes so much deeper. Where I also ate a banh mi for lunch today. (laughs) Oh, I'm I'm so I'm super happy. I'm kind of jealous. But also one. I love how you're like, oh, we should probably do one whole episode on food. Like we will no, no, do a thousand several. of them. Yeah. Oh, fact, yeah. There's We've a podcast out there. 100% my kingdom for a podcast called Asians Eat, which is just about eating S- Asian S- food. S- Yo, Steve, are we going to do Asians Eat? Because then, you know, we're like we could, we, we got that double shot. It's very true. It's very, very true. That'd be, that'd be that, okay. Anyways. Do you want to? You, okay. Hmm. The the thing I wanted to mention was that the 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 way cultures like mix and mingle yeah colonialism and all that stuff where a lot of people got hurt we can talk about that and be very respectful of like the things that we lost but mm-hmm. that bun me and the idea of like uh coming over to the united states and whatnot there is now a fusion of like the traditional cooking methods of uh which also have roots in traditional french cooking uh going over to the united states for gumbo mixing mm. that and there's a restaurant in Vietnam that has taken that and reimagined it using their own <laughs> Vietnamese ingredients back in Vietnam. And so you cannot possibly tell which is which anymore. All you know is that if the cook says they're Vietnamese, it's Vietnamese food. And if they're from like New Orleans, like it's New Orleans food. Like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you can't say anything about that. It's just beautiful and delicious, which is probably the most important piece. Yeah. yeah and I think that's like, 
and I think that's where you know a lot of TTRPGs go do a really poor job of it. It's like you know when people go into like a tavern, like Emma in, in our game. Yeah, we I literally was like, we're going to start at a tavern. I'm going to give you that experience, and I made a whole menu. You made a menu. It was very. Detailed. I made a whole menu. <laughs> Um, I'm like, maybe dishes I might not want to eat myself. But I was like, ah, oh, these seem interesting. And I was like, I wanted to make sure this is a coastal town. There's going to be a lot of seafood and things that they could grow in this region. The kitchen was like, also flexible because we had a vegetarian in the group. Yeah, and, they, and the kitchen was flexible. <laughs> <laughs> and and our our um our cleric was like, do you have vegetarian options? Because the watercress sounds really good, but I don't want the fish. And it, yeah, we had a whole thing about it. But, you know, like, I think, you know, campaign settings and you know, actual plays and even like little zines would do players and GMs a great service in talking about the culinary traditions of, you know, this world. Um, I know that's something that I'm going to be talking about and the thing I'm working on, um, which is also like like what you're doing, Emma, based on a very specific point in Chinese history, based in a very specific region in China. And it's going to be all about that. There's going to be a whole section just on the cuisine. Um, but Steve, I think we should do. Well, I mean, we kind of do have a food show that's on the way. Um, we have a food show that we're it's kind of working on called uh, Bubble Tea Book Club. Um, and you know, this could be bubble tea and other things. Um, but we have a show that we're working on called bubble tea book club. Um, and we can make it happen. It is what we're, we're calling like a Patreon stretch goal. And I guess this is kind of a time when we can talk about Patreon. Um, one of the things that we did on Asians represent in during our break is not only did I play a lot of video games in my downtime, but we set up like a Patreon so that we can make Asians represent more sustainable. And that, you know, as our Patreon grows, so do our resources to allow us to produce more shows and feature more voices. Um, and one of the, our, our first Patreon stretch goal is called Bubble Tea Book Club. And once we hit, you know, 50 patrons, no matter how much they're paying, once we hit 50 patrons, we're going to add a monthly Bubble Tea Book Club. And Steve, perhaps Asians Eat can be one. And we could sit down and do an Asians eat thing. Um, Damn. And we could just, honestly, I think it would be really interesting if we could do something in person. And we just get like a whole bunch of food, a big wide angle lens, and sit down and eat. Um, could be real fun. Um, but yeah, I um, this has been like a really, this has been a conversation that I've been really looking forward to. Um, a, because I knew we were going to talk about like Japanese nationalism. I knew we were going to talk about how politics, um, you know, have an influence on what kind of knowledge is being disseminated. I knew we were going to talk about, you know, really cool things like the Jomon and like, uh, the Yayoi and the Kofun. Um, it's so hard, but I'm it also feels like we always just get a little bit. It's so hard to cover these things in detail. <laughs> There's so much. Uh, and, yeah. and here's the thing about this we can always go back to this now you mentioned food as like um you know steve you mentioned we could do a whole series just on food well i've already been talking to somebody about doing a whole series on clothing and fashion cool. um for the podcast and like so um 
I've been talking with um, a couple of South Asian folks about doing a particular episode on like clothing and representation. We're talking like Iza, uh, Evil Clever Dog is going to join us and as well as Pooja who tweeted at us. Oh, great. Um, but I think it would be really cool to do a whole series on this podcast about, you know, different kinds of clothing um, and how they're represented in TTRPG media. Uh, very much like how we talked about like, oh, the kimono and like the samurai, but also like I knew clothing is very, very different from, mm-hmm. you know, other kinds of traditional Japanese clothing that you might see. There's also uh, a renaissance in China of young people wearing hanfu. <laughs> yeah, the whole, yeah. I've seen as, as fashion statements or like LARP as like a really popular practice in in China. Um, and I think this is something that we're going to explore. Um, but I know we're going to wrap up soon. Yeah. Uh, Steve, did you have any last questions? Because we're wrap, I have a million questions. But because we're wrapping <laughs> up, what I wanted to share with the two of you in our audience here is that um, a lot of the conversations we've had, they were actually so in-depth and really interesting to me, but really hard for me to like build meaningful connections that I can take with me and put into my next game, things like that. But what I will share is that there was one thing that I really honed in on, and here's my my process, and I've started mm. a little bit here to just verify that's going to work. This whole like idea of like the keyhole, I literally keep uh, googled keyhole, uh, giant keyhole Japan uh, into Google. <laughs> it'll work. Like, it, it, yeah, okay. It, it yeah. got me Kofun, and like it got me the Wikipedia page. It got me the Wikipedia page, and it got me all of, like this information. But Wikipedia, of course, is probably the most sterile, bland way you could possibly get information. Uh, I see a couple of videos as well, and I'm going to go into that. So my thought process here is that throughout this podcast, if there's one thing you're like, yeah, that's what I want to really research into, starting with one is probably the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Google it. Even if you can't spell it, just put the context in there. Giant Keyhole Japan worked. And we can, <laughs> so yeah. I'm sure it'll work for you. We can put the uh, yeah. key terms in like a description as well because yeah well i'll be that's the best thing that i can offer is i can tell you so many details but you won't necessarily process it the best thing to do is to grab some keywords and start looking around Mm -hmm. so giant keyhole japan like (laughs) it works yeah (laughs) uh you know you know what's a really funny way to find dogu Jomodogu is if you search ancient aliens Japan, oh, no. <laughs> then you get Dogu. It's ridiculous. I, it's ridiculous. I it's, can't. it's trash. Oh. Um, but what we're gonna do is I will definitely be putting a lot of our major like key search terms in uh the video description on YouTube. Yeah. Um kind of had a little bit of a goof and the video didn't record for the first little bit, but we have audio for everything. And what I'll do is for the YouTube upload, I'll basically take the audio track and put it over like a graphic, and then we'll just upload it that way. Future episodes will just have all of our 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 our, our lovely, lovely faces um, on it. And Steve, your moneymaker, as your you money said. Your moneymaker, yeah. Your moneymaker, as It makes you me money. Like, it, it makes <laughs> you money, right? Um, that said, we have some folks that we need to thank. Um, and that's our amazing patrons. Um, one of the things that we want to do with Asians Represent is ensure that we can grow and be sustainable. Um, 
one thing we don't want to happen is basically having me burn out again and decide that like ages represent can be no more. Um, we don't want that to happen. Um, and we also realize that in order to bring in more voices, in order to you know, increase the production value and share more resources, we need your help. And so we set up a Patreon. Um, it's just patreon.com slash AZNS represent. Uh, we've got a couple different tiers um, and we have some incredible, incredible patrons to shout out. We have our disciples, but... We have our guardians, Brooke Bright, Pixel Grotto, Daisy May. Thank you for your support. And we have our most honorable patrons. And our most honorable patrons are, I was going to bring out Marla, but my my partner, who I've been texting to be like, get Marla, <laughs> is uh, not looking at her phone. Um, but we have our most honorable patrons who deserve a special, special shout out for their support of Asians Represent. And that's Ryan the Wizard Hall and sure <laughs> Metal Weave Games Andreas. And here's Marla. Marla is going to thank... Ow, ow, class. Marla is going to thank all of you. Marla, say thank you to our amazing, most honorable patrons. Wink. No? Oh, did we get a squeak out of her? I think we got a squeak out of her, right? Marla? Oh, there we go. Oh, that's go. so small. Oh, oh my oh, goodness. Oh, bye, Marla. Um, every single <laughs> every single time we stream, our most honorable patrons will get a lovely thank you squeak from Marla, the obese cat. Y'all are awesome. You are the most honorable of all of our patrons because that's the title that we wanted the tier to be. But again, seriously, thank you to everyone who supported us. Um, our show notes... Uh, from this episode with detailed links to articles and everything will be available for um, basically uh, select patron tiers. Uh, if you are a disciple patron or higher, uh, we'll have a, an edited audio feed that's exclusively for you uh, on Patreon. Uh, if you aren't a patron or you don't have the means to support us, that is totally okay. Um, keep tuning in on Twitch, watch on YouTube, or even spread the word. Uh, everything helps. Uh, once we hit 50 patrons, we're going to start Bubble Tea Book Club. Fingers crossed we could do that this month. That's the goal. Yeah. Uh, if we hit 150 patrons, we're going to do a Wuxia D&D miniseries. Uh, and I've already started assembling the cast. And I may or may not be playtesting it with my Sunday group. <laughs> um, but yeah, super, super hyped for all of our amazing patrons and your support. Um, and super hyped that Emma, you agreed to, you know, come on here and just talk about talk Japanese past. You like talk about the Japanese <laughs> past and like the, the cool stuff. And also like, congratulations on completing your PhD. Like Thank that you. was, that is a huge undertaking. Not many people can finish that myself included. Um, so super, super proud of you. Super proud that, you know, we can call you, I could call you a friend and super proud that, you know, you've been able to take, you know, your academic experience and your lived experience and kind of sort of marry them with, you know, the gaming community that you've, that you've joined. Um, <laughs> I know I you always say that like, <laughs> whoa, 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 I, I asked you and yeah, you said yes. I did. And then you just kind of stayed. It's true. Once I got um, here. <laughs> yeah. Once you got here, you're like, oh, dang, yeah. I guess I'm here. I, um, that does yeah. bring me around to one last thing i would like to say let's do it 
uh, because I want this to be available to everyone. We talked about the Ainu quite a bit. Yes. And they are super cool, but I would encourage everyone to learn about them, but not necessarily incorporate them into your games and settings because they are a marginalized, historically excluded, and like they've been put down so much. They really need to have their own voices out there before anyone starts or continues to tell their stories for them. So learn as much as you can. That's great. But I'd say just maybe don't <laughs> yeah. do like use them because they've been used quite a bit already. I think a big takeaway from this is like, you know, the, the Jomo and the Yayoi are like a there's, really great starting there's plenty point. plenty to work with. <laughs> so much to work with. Yeah. If you do want to learn more about, you know, the Ainu and folks who are kind of um, trying to reinvigorate Ainu traditions and renew understanding and interest in the Ainu, a really great place to start for me. Like, cause I, you know, I, I know about the Ainu from academia, but for me it was learning about Ainu Upopo. They're like everyday music. Yeah. And there is a group called Mariru who do traditional Ainu music and they're on Spotify. There's um, plenty of artists and they have their own resources. Read the stuff, watch the videos, look at the things. It's, I, I know, super inspiring, but just be mindful of how they've been treated. And, you know, perhaps those stories need to be their own and not a TTRPG at this point. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a really good point to make. Uh, that that said, I know, Steve, we did talk about this or rehearse how we how, will end this podcast. How we actually end. <laughs> but Great. The, normally what we do is like, you know, Zoom, it makes things really difficult to kind of sync things up. But at the end of every episode of Asians Represent, we tell you that, hey, look, you folks, if you have any questions about the themes, the topics, or anything discussed on Asians Represent, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at AZNSrep. We have a shiny website that I that I made for us, AZNSrepresent.com. Um, check us out there. Check us out on Patreon where you can find exclusive content, show notes, uh, and more. Uh, help us decide what future topics we're going to cover on this show now in two weeks we're going to have our very own jeremy blum join us Yay. for a conversation of how key or chi in DD can be used more narratively rather than as a combat mechanic um really cool stuff but our patrons are really going to be able to help us shape the future of our content if you really like the fashion stuff let us know um if you have questions let us know. We could pass them on to Emma, or you could reach out to Emma via the, the social link yeah. below. Starchiologist. Yeah. Doctor of starch. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, doctor of starch. Um, <laughs> uh, reach out. Uh, but that said, um, Steve, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. I want to say, my name is Daniel. I'm Steve. And you've just listened to Asians Present. Oh, God. <laughs> We'll, we'll work on this. Yeah. We'll work on this. You said it at completely different paces. <laughs> it happens. It it happens. You like didn't do it like we do in the podcast. We do like the Asians represent. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll workshop this, y'all. We'll we'll figure it out. But take care, everyone, and we will see you next time. Bye.